Hello friends, this is the AlphaList Podcast. I am your host, Toby. The goal of the AlphaList Podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. Tired of stifting through countless resumes and struggling to find the right tech talent? Look no further. WorkGenius has some exciting news to share with you. WorkGenius has acquired ExpertLead. Now they bring even more efficiency to your hiring process. Real-time live coding assessments for all. Whether you're a startup or an established enterprise, WorkGenius is now also here to turbocharge your hiring process. Say goodbye to the guesswork and endless interviews. WorkGenius matches your candidates with experts, saving you time and getting you top talent. Win-win. How it works? Share your tech job applicants. WorkGenius takes care of the rest. Your candidates? They are in the hands of seasoned pros. WorkGenius matches them with experienced senior developers and puts them through tailored, enjoyable and fair technical interviews. Your company gets the cream of the crop, the most sought-after talents in the industry, and you save your hardworking tech and HR teams valuable time. If you want to try it out, visit link.alphalist.com work. Welcome to the Alphalist Podcast. I am your host, Toby. And with me today is my friend, Alan Leinwand um, from San Francisco, tune in from San Francisco. And um, Alan is the CEO of Webflow. Um, I guess like almost everyone here of my listeners knows Webflow. Um, <laughs> it's a, I, I wouldn't say it's a CMS. It's much more than that. Um, Alan, how would you describe Webflow? Yeah, I describe Webflow as a visual development platform. So we really think about Webflow as a way to have a visual environment to let designers build amazing websites super fast. Um, probably the best way I like to describe Webflow is if you've ever built a website using an older tool like WordPress or something like that, um, we're the next generation. We're the ones that allow you to do it visually, faster, and with really, really high performance. So okay. we're, we're, you know, our tagline is we're bringing development superpowers to everyone. If we take that visual environment, that visual development environment, and allow everyone to create like amazing web properties. That's what we do. It, to, to be honest, it reminds me like it, quite a bit of uh, my youth when when like Borland and Delphi was still uh, like I, I know that it's a hard comparison and I don't want to compare you to that, but like that that visual way of programming was 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 really nice and and and, and really like I, I lost track of that for a while um, and and yeah. with Webflow now it's back but just in different shape and way more way richer right and way more design oriented. Yeah, I remember the drag and drop days of programming with with uh, puzzle pieces, essentially, <laughs> and making that all turn into a, the original no code environment. Um, Webflow to me actually kind of reminds me of something a little different, and that's back to the Dreamweaver days of being able to build websites with Dreamweaver and putting it all together with HTML 
and then of obviously CSS and adding JavaScript and yeah. then having it all go live. So it's it's more like everything from Dreamweaver all the way through actually being live on the internet uh, in one click. So that's kind of what we do. And and if you if you jump back to Dreamweaver in your mind and <laughs> you 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 like back to, to the the good old days and like would you ever have imagined that a few years later you can you can build a website with a website <laughs> i mean yeah, that's that's I mean, so crazy right it is crazy to think about being online and being able to do that and being able to think about sitting in a browser and building a web property that you hit a publish button on and now it's put into hundreds of cdn sites it's reactive it handles different types of you know formats yeah. iphone tablets browsers Uh, it automatically allows you to tie into, as you already mentioned, a content management system, a CMS, and all that being available to everyone is is pretty mind blowing to be to be to be honest yeah. to, to your point. Yeah, yeah. Before we dive deeper, I, I I'd like to hear like a bit later maybe um, about your front end stack and how it all works. I mean, it's super rich, right? Your your application yeah. is super rich and super super snappy, and um, I think that's many. That, that that doesn't apply to, to to too many many apps these days, right? There's Figma, etc., uh, which is which is obviously like maybe even a bit crazier. But but um, <laughs> I, I think it's crazy, and I, I, I'd like to talk about that. Uh, yeah, but, sure. but before that, uh, let, let's let's bit like, let's talk a bit about your past. So you 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 also um, acted as CTO at Shopify just after JML, I think. Like who who I uh, also had on the podcast and oh, great. you worked as CTO for ServiceNow, I think. And that's right. SAP at Slack. So I mean that's like a really crazy diverse history, <laughs> right? And it even Zynga, right? Also yes. also CTO yes. or yeah, I was CTO of infrastructure at Zynga, that's right. Okay, okay. Well um, quite a quite a vast experience. So so happy to 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 hear a bit more. But maybe before we deep dive, what, what's your what's your nerd journey like? Why why did you get where you are? Why why did you why did you become what you are? What what is what is what is the history behind that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I haven't heard that term nerd journey, so I like it. Um, I'm going to use that. Um, well, I came out of college, and I'd always been interested in computers and computer science, so I got a computer science degree. And I ended up getting hired um, by Hewlett Packard uh, in Palo Alto, which is just a little bit south of where I am right now. And I was originally supposed to be, this will, this will date me a little bit, but I was originally supposed to be working on uh, the HP mainframes, the IBM systems that they had. And I told the interviewer that I really wasn't excited about that. And I learned about TCPIP and the internet and Ethernet, technically, back in college. I said, I kind of like this TCPIP thing. So they stuck me in this brand new group that had just been deploying these boxes called San Francisco Systems Routers. And we were deploying them to 100 to 200 Hewlett Packard sites around the planet using 64 kilobit satellite links and you know very, very small 9.6 modem sort of things. And eventually, I got really entrenched in building this very large HP internet for, uh, based on Cisco products. After doing that for a couple of years, um, Cisco recruited me. So I went over to Cisco. And I had always been naturally curious about everything that the router had done and what was going on with routing at the time. So I um, actually took a job as a senior trainer. And the reason my, my thought process there was like, if I can train people how to do this, then I'll understand it in lots and lots of detail. So I did that for a number for a couple of years. And then I decided I wanted to go back into the technology side of things. So I went back into writing code 
and I wrote network management systems. So I wrote tools that actually managed and developed and um, optimized the networks that our customers had. And then after doing that for a while, I decided the world was bigger than a 19-inch monitor, and I wanted to go travel a bit. So I did something called consulting engineering, where I was sent out to Cisco customers all around the planet to help them design their networks in a way that was scalable. And I did that for about three years. Um, so I, my time at Cisco was about six and a half, seven years. And then I got introduced to a friend of mine, um, a, a friend, via a mutual friend, and he had described the startup he wanted to build. This is now like mid-90s, uh, late 90s, actually. And we founded this startup, myself and um, this this friend of a friend, and we called it Digital Island. And Digital Island was founded in 97. Um, we took that company, we built data centers, we built the first CDNs, and our, our whole reason for building that company was we built data centers on islands, uh, Honolulu, uh, the UK, uh, Hong Kong. And the idea is like, we've then put in many, many network connections to all the far-flung places across the planet. And we wanted everyone to be as close to the data as possible. And then when we saw the CDNs start to evolve, we started to put data as close to the end users as possible as well. Digital Island did very well, hired a couple thousand people, took the company public, went over our dot-com, sort of boom and bust. Um, I came out of that. Um, uh, left the company and then ended up doing a couple startups of my own, again, in the routing, networking, application space. Um, did that for a number of years, a couple of different startups. One of them did pretty well. One of them got acquired. And then I went off and um, got recruited to be a VC. So I spent six and a half, seven years again, seems to be the time frame I hang out at things, um, as a VC. I uh, worked for a company called J.P. Morgan Partners, doing investments in technology. And then we spun that out to become a company called Panorama Capital. So I was involved in that company. Um, and then, honestly, I, I kind of got bored managing people's money. It's probably the nice way of putting it. Can, can, um, can imagine, I, I, I like the VC it's, world, it's and I like having that. Sorry? It's not for everyone. It's it's just yeah. like being being so hands-off. Yeah, exactly. Um, it is It is hard to be that hands-off when you're a technologist at heart. So I saw the social wave happening. I saw Facebook come and accelerate, and I got really intrigued by social gaming. So I went into, as you mentioned before, I was running infrastructure at Zynga for a number of years. I got recruited to be CTO at ServiceNow, took that company from 35 engineers up to several thousand um, through the IPO, through the Zynga IPO. Um, did, did some amazing things, I think, at, at ServiceNow. Then I went over to Slack before the IPO. I was running engineering at Slack uh, and took that company public, or helped take that company public by helping run the engineering teams. And then went from Slack, as you as you mentioned earlier, over to Shopify, uh, CTO there after JML. And then after a couple of years at Shopify, I'm now at, at Webflow. So that's my my nerd journey. So it it started in networking, and then it kind of moved up the stack in applications and gaming and um communications and social networking and now it's up into web design so i kind of think of myself as starting it you know if you're thinking the osi model which i i tend to do um starting at layer one and work my way up to layer seven sort of thing absolutely absolutely uh so that it's quite interesting i mean also for um a cto with uh, like an infrastructure background to really um, go to a more like front-end heavy company. I mean, obviously, Webflow also needs the edge, right? Um, and, right. And, and, a, and a CDN, etc. But I don't know if that's the most important thing, or it's more about the the editor. Like you, you, you can tell us later. Um, what is your, if you could describe yourself, like um, if we had like a a card 
card game and, and uh, there, there was your character on the card, what would be like your secret superpower? Hmm. I think my, my secret superpower is I'm naturally curious. Um, I really like to get in the details and I really like to understand how things work. I like to say, I like to understand it from the data center floor all the way up through the app stack. Like I want to be able to trace how things occur. Like you mentioned, the Webflow designer, the editor, our main product that people are building within uh, what they're using to design their websites is the designer. But I like to know, yes, the designer is a React app and it has drag and drop and it's got a canvas and it has applications that can tie in and it's an API surface level and it's all that stuff. But I like to think about what's the structure of the app and then what's the structure of the data structures underneath it? What's the structure of the storage underneath that? What's the structure of the network underneath that? How does that actually get delivered out to the browser? So I, I tend to think about things like up and down the stack all the time. And I think understanding that is so important for people because it allows you to optimize everything in that engineering workflow. If you're focused only on the front end and you think of like the network and the back end as the database is like, yeah, that's just magic that happens over there in Amazon somewhere, then I think you really lose the ability to optimize and understand what is happening on the technology stack. You lose the ability to allocate resources properly within the engineering teams. You lose the ability to build what's best for the business because you don't really understand everything that's happening. So my superpower that I, I think, you know, if you talk to people that have worked with me, they'd say, Alan is, is technical up and down the stack. And you know he he spends time focusing and understanding all that. Um, and 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 do you think like it's it's the job of the CTO to always understand that, or uh, is is that special for you? I think there's two types of CTOs. I think there are CTOs that are amazing at going out and talking technology, setting strategic technical vision, working with customers, sort of being that thought leader CTO. Uh -huh. And then there's the CTOs that are more. I don't want to say inwardly focused, but they're focused more on the technology stack and building the right technology for the business. I'm clearly more, I think I'm 70, 80% the latter and maybe 10 to 15% the, the former. Um, so I think there's two types of CTOs. There are probably more. There's two types that I, I tend to classify that role into. Um, I've done roles where I'm out talking to customers and sort of being the technologist, but in my heart of hearts, I'm, I'm a builder and I want to build things. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and and how does that relate to the CPO? I mean, these days there's like often often the debate about um CTOs uh like moving closer to product. Um does that work well with the builder CTO or how do you sometimes like zoom out uh and, and think about the customer? Yeah, um I think CPOs and product teams are really good at describing the what, like what is being built. And I think engineering teams should be really good at describing the how. So that's how I think about it. And, you know, you mentioned my career. I've done a bunch of different things in my career where there is another, like, uh, algorithm, if you will, that I use in order to pick careers. I'm looking for places I can go where I can take my knowledge and apply it to a market that I haven't really studied before. I went to gaming, and I didn't know, honestly, anything about gaming. I played games, but I didn't know like how the gaming economics worked and how the business of gaming worked. I knew I could take my technology mindset and the way I build tech stacks and apply it to Zynga, but I didn't know social gaming. You know, When I went over to ServiceNow, I didn't know enterprise workflows. We were just beginning to build that enterprise workflow model out. 
but I knew I could learn it, but I could apply the technology of what I had done. That particular shop is a JavaScript and a, and a Java shop. Um, I knew I could apply that to that particular protocol stack or technology stack. Um, Slack, I was a Slack user, and obviously I, I used a lot of Slack, but I, I didn't necessarily know the morality and the social social components and how the WebSocket real-time interface was constructed in a way to scale globally. So I, I thought I could take my technology knowledge and, and do that. And your your earlier question at Webflow, I'm not a front-end designer. I'm not the key market person at Webflow, mm-hmm. but uh, I have a natural curiosity. One of the things I did before I even joined the company is I built my own website in Webflow. I went into one of my first interviews with a website I had built. I you know, in typical Alan fashion, I not only looked at the code being generated by the website, but I cracked open, you know, Wireshark and I went and I saw what it was actually doing on the wire. And I actually started to figure out what was happening between the clients and the servers and where it was hosted and all that. So I could understand that, that full stack. So I think, you know, one of the things about CTOs is I think you can be technical and you can take that technical knowledge and you can apply it across multiple disciplines but you have to be able to, to think and you have to be able to be curious about that discipline that the business is in. You can't go in blindly and apply the tech stack of a service now to Slack or tech Slack, tech stack at Slack to Webflow. Uh, what, what, what's your tech stack actually at Webflow? Yeah. Um, so we use React on the front end to build um, TypeScript and React on the front end to build the front end. The actual compute is running in Node.js. And then the back end is uh, a MongoDB backend for document store that we then store the actual JSON object of the website in. And we actually then deploy that out to um, CDN. So we use um, Fastly and Amazon CloudFront to deploy those assets out. Um, and then we run most of it on AWS. So, Okay, okay. And h- how involved are you on the delivery front? Um, is that like, do you, is that, Mostly static. I mean, the website are mostly static, but have some some dynamic components, right? Um, That's right. How, how, yeah, how, yeah, yeah. The, the websites, um, the websites are are actually most of our websites are dynamic properties as well, yeah. and they use our CMS on the back end, and that CMS is able to display data on the websites based upon maybe where you're coming from, or the type of uh, search you're doing, or the type of landing page you want to do, or maybe it's a, a set of blog pages or a set of podcasts that dynamically generate based upon date or sort. So there are quite a bit of dynamic queries that occur on the back end on, on our side as well. So those end up querying a, a service we have on the back end that, again, pulls that data out of MongoDB, makes it cacheable, and then caches it out as, as necessary onto our CDN and uh, upon our web servers. Do, do you use any... Like either on the on the front end or um, uh, or uh, like in the editor or or on the website, do you use any web ASM or something like um, as as Fastly is kind of well known for that. Um, and I, I always ask myself like who's who's using it? Like who who really has the use case? I, I heard of of Figma using it uh, for for the editor uh, to really be like super snappy. Uh, do, do you do that as well or? Yeah, not not yet. We definitely have some plans to think about doing some of that compute at the edge, but we're not doing that yet. Okay, okay. Yeah, for um, us, Fastly is primarily for um, uh, HTTPS termination and static content for now. Okay. 
are you are you curious to 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 dig deeper there because you you yeah. kind of have the background in, in infrastructure? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I see what Cloudflare is doing with workers. I see what Amazon's doing as well with some of the things on CloudFront. Uh, seeing what what Fastly can do at the edge. I have lots of thoughts around how the designer or the editor or very portions of our CMS, of our content management system, could be delivered at the edge, and then those queries could happen in a more distributed way. Um, we're definitely thinking through that, and we're definitely working on, on those sorts of things I just can't talk about right now. From from your perspective as a, as a curious uh, tech CTO, let's say, or builder CTO, um, what's the most interesting piece and, and also secret sauce uh, at, at Webflow? I think the most interesting thing at Webflow and the, the secret sauce it's going to disappoint you. It's probably not the tech technology, but it's probably the fact that we have founders uh, that are deeply interested in the designer community and deeply understand how designers work. Um, you look at like Vlad and, and Sergey and Bryant, the three founders, they understand what designers want. They understand how designers work. They understand the workflow. They understand the features, how we have to build variables and components and how our CSS has to be optimized. So they really clearly understand the target market. And I think that's really the secret sauce. So, you know, a good portion of the company wakes up every day thinking, how do we make this experience the best experience we can for the web designer? How do we make this websites that get produced the fastest lighthouse scores? How do we get the right content out to the edge as fast as possible? How do we make the publishing uh, a single click so that way people don't need to think about what plugins I got to deal with and dependencies on jQuery and multiple different libraries that are compiled onto the site, all that sort of just goes away. We take care of that for people because we understand the mindset of the designer is I want a creative outlet for what I'm picturing for my, for my website build and I want to get it to market. I want to make it as performant as possible. Now, with that vision being our secret sauce, it's up to us on the engineering side and the product side to build the right products and build the right stacks and and build the right you know developer workflows and and all those things to make that vision a reality. But um, there isn't a you know a special database or a special piece of compute or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of putting it all together in the right way. It's again, it's assembling that stack from the the you know virtual data center floor fiber backbone if you will all the way up to the you know the javascript engine to, to do it in the right way for this particular market and well in a way where really like the results are really brilliant right uh, i mean that's at least like for me uh when whenever i i, I got in touch with webflow and, and and a website that has been built with webflow it's kind of really like a, a coherent and, and super snappy experience mm. that, uh, yeah, that that just is fun to use, right? Um, and and tra awesome. transferring the that all people the way think down. Our product is, I'm sorry. The fact people think our product is fun to use is just just that that makes my day. <laughs> and, and and it kind of is like it it, it connects uh, your current job to the one at, at Shopify, right? Uh, where where like the mission is kind of similar. Yes, I, I I don't know if it also plays well with ServiceNow and and Slack. Well, Slack also it's all about the user experience. I think um, that's right. And and building a product where people, which which really people do love, right, in their day to day. Um, that's right. So I, I think you're right. I mean, you know, one thing I I love about Shopify, and, you know, have tons of respect for that company is their their mission is you know make commerce better for everyone. Like that's kind of what. Toby and Harley and the leadership staff talk about there is we're going to make commerce 
the most amazing thing for everyone from, you know, someone building a piece of product of some sort in their kitchen, all the way up to like, you know, 500 million billion dollar GMV. They want to make commerce better for everyone. And what I really found at Webflow is a very similar analogous thing. The company wants to make web design. They want to make the ability to have anyone be able to produce content on the web, to have a performant website, to really bring those web development superpowers to everyone. So you're right. I mean, just at its at its kernel, you know, again, using that nerd term, at its kernel, you know, Shopify is about bringing commerce to everyone. Webflow is about bringing the web to anyone, everyone. You know, we are, we're a company that's, you know, used by over 250,000 designers to build millions of websites. Some of the biggest brands in the world, New York Times, Ramp, Orange Theory, Fitness, Dell, on and on, you know, use us to build websites. You know, I'll go back to my, my previous role. We could have named a bunch of merchants that you'd all know about that, that use Shopify. But that's really exciting. And you're right, it, it's a much different sort of mindset than a ServiceNow, which is an enterprise software company, which does amazing things for enterprise workflow. But, you know, you're not trying to, like, bring something to everyone. You're trying to bring something to the enterprise. How do you, as, as a builder, CTO, stay technical? Like, how, how do you manage to, I mean, I, I don't know, how many engineers do you have? A couple your, hundred. A couple of hundred. And... and How, how, do, do you can you still be hands on? I mean, can you do, do you have any any touch points with 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 Webflow's code or code base? Yes, yes, I do actually. Um, so the, there's two questions you asked me: How do I take tech, how do I stay technical as a CTO, and then do I have touch points with the code? Um, let me answer both of those. Um, one way I stay technical as a CTO is I am a voracious reader. I read. All sorts of things all the time, and not just technology books. I'm reading history, I'm reading politics, and I'm reading technology. I think just keeping your mind flexible and having that open mindset is is key to staying technical. Uh, the second thing I do is I've been fortunate enough to work with some amazing founders. You know, we've talked about a few of them here, and some amazing technologists. And I just do my best to keep connectivity with them. I have Slack channels with lots of folks, and I have WhatsApp groups with folks, and I, I ask questions and and learn from folks. Um, the third thing I, I think I do a lot is I I find a way to hire people that are smarter than me in specific technologies. Um, I can go, you know, rage of the day. I can go study LLMs. I can go watch the the Ilya videos. I can go, you know, spend hours and learn how LLMs work. Um, and I've done all that. I can also just go talk to the, my folks on the team that really understand LLMs and are using the OpenAI API every day and ask a bunch of questions and learn very quickly as well. So I think there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sort of a, a sneak attack approach there to finding people that are really smart in particular technologies, getting them on your team, and then just talking to them and saying, how does that work? Tell me more about that. Show me a demo um, sort of thing. Um, now back to your question about me staying technical. Uh, yeah, I, I actually do PRs pretty much every week. And I think it's super important for two reasons. One, I want to understand the developer workflow we have at Webflow. I want to understand what does it take to open up a PR? What does it take to do a build? What does it take to get a deploy out there? What's our monitoring look like? What's our test infrastructure look like? What's our, you know, our CI CD pipeline? How does all that work? Because if I don't understand that, again, it's hard for me to um, build the right technology infrastructure and even the right technology organization. So 
I'm not going to profess to be doing like amazing technical leaps in Webflow, but I, I will tell you, we have this uh, Slack channel called UX Paper Cuts. So it's like, you know, little nitnoid things here that drive people crazy about the product. Someone will put a, a comment in this channel. And about once or twice a week, I'll go pick up a paper cut. I'll figure it out. I'll find in the code where to fix it. And I'll fix it and I'll ship it. And um, really? sometimes it's, you know, takes me an hour. Sometimes it takes me five minutes. But I think just, again, being in that workflow and understanding what the engineering teams are doing and understanding how the code's structured. Um, for the first few months that I was here, it took me a little while to find, you know, I'd see a paper cut in a particular area and I'd have to like grep through the, the entire code base to try and find out where that code was. Now I understand how things are structured and I kind of can go straight into VS Code and I can start editing right away. Um, I can pretty much guess the file name I have to go to, find the TSX file and go. So I think there's a lot of, you know, hacks that I, I'm doing to sort of like keep myself technical. Navigating through the crowded space of corporate podcasts, I've come across a standout, the Code-Centric Culture and Career Podcast. However, it's important to note that this podcast is primarily in German. What distinguishes this podcast from the sea of similar content? It's a refreshing departure from the typical corporate narrative. At Code-Centric, they've embraced a unique approach. The podcast gives a platform to their employees, allowing them to voice their experience and perspectives. This includes everything from the ups and downs of project business, grappling with imposter syndrome, to the complexities and rewards of balancing parental leave with a career in consulting. What I find most commendable about Codecentric's approach is their unwavering dedication to authenticity. This podcast isn't about putting on a performance or overwhelming listeners with advertisement, It's an open window into their culture, candidly showcasing their strengths and acknowledging areas of improvement. So those who seek authentic stories and insights into the professional world, the Codecentric's Culture and Career Podcast is more than just a recommendation. It's an essential listen. I encourage you to dedicate an hour to it. The experience is truly worthwhile. To tune in, simply use Spotify or your preferred podcast platform and search for it or visit link.alphalist.com slash cc. Um, one is sort of like community building, hiring great people, having an ecosystem of people asking a lot of questions. And the second one is like literally putting myself in the code uh, weekly just so that way I understand what the tech stack looks like, what our engineers are going through, some of the pain points, and understand how the code and the product is structured. Is that would you would you say it's a it's a like straightforward structure that you're building there? Is it like a monolith or? Yeah, we we have a monolith, um, and it's it's funny. A lot of the companies I work for are monoliths. Uh, ServiceNow yeah. is a monolith, or started as a monolith. Uh, Slack is um, started as a monolith, and it's frayed a little bit, but it's pretty much a monolith. Um, um, Shopify is definitely a Ruby and Rails a majestic monolith. They call it uh, monolith monoliths. And here we're we're essentially a, a monolith as well, but we have carved out various services that we use. Um, so it is deployed primarily as a single package and as a monolith. Um, but there are definitely structures and areas of the code that people have ownership on. So we use code owner files. We understand who owns which portions of the code, and those people are responsible for that code for writing the code, testing the code, deploying the code, and operating it twenty four seven. So it's not a complete spaghetti mess of code that everyone touches everyone's pieces. But it is a monolith in terms of how we have the repo structured and how we deploy it. 
I, I would also say that a monolith is not bad per se, right? Yeah, I, uh, you know, there's there's lots of healthy debate out there about monolith versus microservices, macroservices, etc. Yeah. I think as long as you have code ownership well defined, the deployment mechanism, whatever works best for the organization, I'd say is is viable. I've seen areas where you have macroservices and microservices deployed, and people love that. I've seen other organizations where that is frustrating to people to understand how things work. Um, and likewise, with monorepos and monoliths, um, it's very easy to understand where all the code lives, but people sometimes get frustrated with deployment cycles. You know, we are very fortunate here that we are deploying, you know, dozens of times a day, and we are deploying actively all the time. Probably the time we've been talking, we've deployed a few times. So we're not in the How, how, how long does each deployment take? Uh, anywhere between, well, well. so um, CI time is less than 10 minutes and total um, commit time to deploy is under 20. Wow, that's great. Yeah, yeah, that's great. We have, we, have, we have a merge queue we're using right now where we can take things directly from um, you know, development into staging and then to prod in roughly 20 minutes. You know, sometimes 22, sometimes a little under, but that's, that's a rough time frame. So I guess you, you are you using... Kubernetes and Docker, et cetera, et cetera, and or yeah, yeah, we we build things into um, containers, and then we use Kubernetes to manage those containers. That's right. So it's on AWS. So we're using AWS's uh, container management system to do that. Cool. And uh, back, back back to you coding. Um, <laughs> uh, is your team uh, like? Do you really manage to to do that like in in good good shape and quality? Uh, whenever you you fix a bug, like is your team always happy though with that, or like it, are there moments when it, where your team says, "Hey, that's that's an Allen code again"? Or <laughs> yeah, I would say um, my code's been corrected. My code has been reviewed. Uh, <laughs> I'm learning a bit more about how Webflow does quality code and code formats we do here. And the design pattern for building against. Um, again, there's part of the learning process. You know, no one walks into an engineering org of hundreds and starts coding in a perfect pattern based upon the history of that org. So, yeah, I think I'm getting better. Um, but you know, people people hold me accountable, and I like that. Um, you brought a lot of companies or you at least were, were acting as CTO when, when companies went public, right? Um, or, or straight after or straight, like shortly before. Yes. Um, is there also some, some superpower um, on, your, on your imaginary uh, playing card uh, that, that you're particularly good in, I don't know, making companies compliant for an IPO or something or... Anything that that speaks for you there, and why why Toby called you, or well, Toby wasn't before the IPO, right? Or why Vlad right. called you now and wants you to make the the company IPO ready? Or yeah, I, I'm, hmm. I think I think there's nothing. You know, there's obviously some compliance things you have to do to get ready for IPO. There's some security things you have to do. You have to be able to build the right structure, build the right risk, understand um, how to keep. In most my case, SaaS companies up and available because you have to have a great availability. You have to be able to withstand security threats, DDoS, all that good stuff, and, and plan for that. But I think the the one thing that I do well is again I, I align the needs of engineering with the needs of the business. Um, I'm not really good, and I don't think I'd be good in an organization that builds what I call science projects. I mean, we're obviously innovating and we're doing great things and we're we're thinking ahead. 
but I'm, I'm not going to be building an engineering org that goes off into a dark room for years and hope something pops out. Um, that's, that's not, that's not sort of the, the CTO I'm at. I'm the type of CTO that will get a company operationally ready, get it functioning from an engineering perspective to deliver the product, to accelerate that product delivery, to make sure the, you know, the SaaS product is up and available and secure and performant. Um, and those are all things I think you need for, for an IPO. So I, I think you're right. I mean, I, if I think about the roles that I've, I've gone into, maybe with the exception of the, the startups, it's when that company is getting ready to hit that inflection point towards IPO and they need to sort of operationalize engineering a bit more. Uh, that seems to be when I, I hit my stride, if you will. <laughs> and um, does it come with with like some standards that you, you can apply everywhere? Like let's say like getting IPO ready is maybe similar to, to going through like a large investment round with, with some institutional investor, right? Maybe like even, well, I, I guess way harder, but uh, let, let's say like many, many of my listeners, I think, go, go through that, that route of, of uh, like facing a, a due diligence and yep. having, having some, some things to just fix, maybe even like guessing that there will be a due diligence at a certain point. Um, What would be like your recommendations um, to, to be like really due diligence ready? Are you always due diligence ready? Um, are there any like secret secrets you can you can you can you can tell people to, to kind of be prepared? I think the one thing that I focus on that helps is a way to help engineering teams get away from tech debt. And The reason I think of this in as an answer to your question is because an engineering team that is not executing well is not going to be able to execute the things they need to do in order to get ready to get a Series A or a Series B or a Series C, and I've done all those, or go through an IPO, because they're worried about maybe some of the tech debt that's encumbering them and slowing them down. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I, I think about is I think about how do engineering teams understand the customer problems that they have with the product, uh, make sure that those customer problems get fixed, and then build really, really innovative products on top of that. So the really pithy way I like to say it is fix customer issues, make sure they don't happen again, and then build really kick-ass innovative products. And what I find interesting is a lot of, and I learned that from uh, one of my mentors back at ServiceNow, and I think one of the One of the things that engineering teams do wrong is the work on really cool, innovative product, because that's the fun part of the job. A customer issue or a customer problem will occur, and they'll do what I, what I, they'll run to the fire. They'll, they'll go in, they'll try and fix the problem. And then they'll realize that, hey, the problem is because this database architecture doesn't work, or this front end stack is not scalable, or the design pattern we used in this code isn't going to work going forward. And they go, yeah, we should work on that. And they kind of push that off to the side. Um, what I think, teams end up doing that is then they go back to working on a really cool product and then the next customer issue comes and they push all the problems you know into the corner again and then that, that continues over and over again and eventually what happens is you get sort of laden with all this tech debt which which doesn't allow you to do the things you want to do for the diligence rounds to be innovative mm. however if you find out that you find there's a customer issue you find out yeah that customer issue is because we need a new set of query patterns or we need to change 
our, 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 our scripting language, or we need to become more type safe, or what do we need to do? Fix that problem. And then go off and, and be innovative. And I'm not saying like the entire team has to do it in this lockstep, but make sure you allocate resources to do all that. Because if you if you do that, then guess what? You have a customer problem. You quickly make sure it doesn't happen again, or you allocate resources to make sure it doesn't happen again. And then all you're doing is innovating because you're not spending time like going back to the corner and looking at the tech debt growing in the corner and thinking, wow, how am I ever going to get a hold of that? And the reason I, I bring all this up is because you're right. There will come a point in time when the CFO, the accounting people, uh, the risk and compliance people come to engineering and they say, hey, we need you to fix these security vulnerabilities. And hey, you know, are we really ready for a DDoS if we're going to go public? Or we're about to do a funding round to do our Series B or our Series C, and they want to know how we're thinking about innovating in this area. And if we're so laden with tech debt and we're so consumed with fixing bugs and, and not being able to handle that, then we're kind of dead in the water at that point. Mm. Your stack sounds also quite conservative, um, if I look at it right. I mean, or classic, let's say, Node, yeah. and then there's MongoDB, etc. Um, how do you kind of still attract good talent to, to, to work on that? And how do, you, how do you teach people that this conservative stack is, is a good stack um, and, 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 and is actually working? I mean, it, it, it sounds great because it doesn't sound like Lots of tech debt on the first view, at least. Um, yeah. How, how do you how do you make people stick to that? Yeah. So two questions are one: How do you attract great talent um, if you're not, you know, on the latest and greatest? I like call it shiny object from uh, the tech stack. And then two: um, How do you maintain that? Um, so first of all, I think the best engineers want three things. They want to solve hard problems at scale. And that scale could be a complexity problem on compute. It could be a scale of like the internet scale. It could be a scale of storage. It could be a scale of code complexity, but they want to solve hard problems. That's what engineers want to do. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing they want to do is they want to solve large problems and then have that code ship to production. The best engineers I know don't want to work on really complicated problems, again, for six years, and never have it see the light of day. I'm sure there are people that do amazing research that you know do that sort of stuff, and I benefit from it, I'm sure, every day. Um, but that's not the teams I work on. And the third thing is, is they want to work you know, with good people. So I think if you can tell people that, yes, our tech stack is more classic. It's not you know, on the edge of, of, of technology, but you're going to work at a hard problem at scale. You're going to be able to ship to prod and you're going to work with a good team, and we are doing innovative work, I think you can attract great talent. I don't think you have to be running the latest pick-your-favorite-language, pick-your-favorite-database structure, pick-your-favorite-front-end archetype uh, architecture, excuse me, um, in order to attract great talent. And I think the one thing that you can do is you can do portions of innovation. You always want to have an area of the team that is innovating, that is looking at something new, that is looking at the latest tech, that is looking at, you know, the, the latest way to deploy, that is looking at the latest design patterns in our particular world. You really want people doing that. But you have to then figure out a way to actually take that piece of technology and put it back into engineering. One thing we do at, at Webflow, and I've done this a few times in my past, is we have an area of Webflow we call Webflow Labs. 
So Webflow Labs is, you know, thinking about things that are adjacent to our, our business. Um, they probably will, 60% of them will probably fail. You know, 40% of them, well, maybe 30% of them or 20% of them will be interesting, but not that interesting. And 10 or 20% of them will be really, really exciting. And what we do when we find something in Webflow Labs that we find in that category that's really exciting is we literally have a graduation ceremony. So we put on caps and gowns and we like play pomp and circumstance and we have a little bitty graduation ceremony where we take that technology out of labs and we fund it in engineering. And the idea about that is that we have the ability to make sure that technology goes forward. So, you know, to answer your questions probably most succinctly is I think you have to build an environment where people can work on really scalable problems, hard problems, ship them to production, and work with good people. And the second thing you have to be able to do is you have to be able to figure out a way to have a, a center of innovation, but not have that center of innovation be something that is theoretical. Have it be something that can land in engineering and have it have it do something that have a bit have it graduate from innovation labs into engineering and be funded. And I think that's a really cool way to keep that innovation cycle going. So if, if someone tells you, hey, I, I, I would love to, to try out a vector database, then you would run it through your labs, essentially? Or like, what, what would you say if an engineer approaches you and says, hey, I urgently want to try that piece of technology without having like a real application for it? Like, would you say go home or? <laughs> we wouldn't say go home. We'd say, um, let's see if we can find the reason that we do that vector database and uh, find the business need for it. If we found a business need for it, like with some of our AR projects that we're working on right now, we'd probably fund it in the AI teams they're working on. Mm -hmm. If it was something that we didn't have a product plan for, we might fund it in the labs. We might say go play with it for you know in labs for a little while, and we'll see where that goes. Um, so I think there's there's two ways for vector databases and LLMs and things that are happening in that space. We we have programs that are are in products that are being developed in that space. And we do have folks playing with those types of databases uh, right now. Yeah, it was just an example, but I guess uh, AI is quite quite relevant for your business, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's relevant. Yeah, well, for almost everyone. Yeah, you're right. Um, so um, I closely would like to to come to the end. Uh, quite quite insightful what you what you told us so far. Um, if you could give my listeners maybe free tips. Um, that like free realizations that you went through in your last two jobs, maybe like in the last few years, like what, 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 what did you learn in the last years? I think one thing that I would encourage all prospective engineers to do is just become great at something. Um, think about your favorite restaurant. They probably have a chef special dish. I go to this place, go to this place for pizza. I go to that place for chicken. I go to this place, they have an amazing burrito. Like, you know, like restaurants do that and chefs do that. And when you go to a restaurant and they're really good at something, it has that halo effect and it has that, that belief and that understanding that if they can cook a great chicken, then they can probably do some other things. And learning how to cook a great chicken, maybe they learned other patterns on how to cook food in a different way that will also be super tasty. And the reason I bring that up is like, Early in my career, I went very deep in networking. Like I can go down to the bite level and lots of different things in networking. And I became sort of like the person that knew infrastructure really, really, really well. But as I progressed in my career, 
I took that knowledge and that pattern and how networking works, queuing theory, um, back off, uh, things that, that have relevancy into so many other areas of software and so many other areas of technology. So my one tip is like, go learn something at, at the most amazing depth you can, because I'm willing to bet that it's going to have relevance or it's going to have an analogy or it's going to help you understand other areas of the technology stack going forward. My second tip is kind of what I, I was describing earlier. I like to go to companies where I like, to, the way I say it is it's a 10 to 15 degree tangent of what I'm really good at. So I, I, I go to companies with business models and businesses that I think are fascinating. And I don't have to be an expert in that space, but I have to know that I will add value to that, that business. So go find the areas that are interesting to you and think about how do you apply your technical abilities to that market. Um, that, that's really important to do. And I think the more markets you understand, the more rich your career will be, the more fascinating you'll find the world, the more curious you'll be about things. And the, the third tip I'd say that I've learned over the past few jobs, and I, I know this might sound a little odd, but I, I do think it, it is true, is um, leaders matter. You know, the people you work for, the people that set the tone of the company. You look at Frank Slootman, you look at Mark Pincus, you look at Stuart Butterfield and Cal Henderson, you look at Toby Luque and Harley Finkelstein. And these are people, you know, you look at Vlad and Sergey and Bryant here at Webflow. These are people that believe in their business, love their product, understand the user base, are passionate about it, live it 24 by 7 all the time. And those leaders are people that really can, can do amazing things in the world. So I, I, I look for companies that, and I, I think you all should look for companies where you, you, you passionately believe in the product, you passionately believe you can bring something to it, and they're led by folks that really understand the market they're tracking, and they really are passionate about it because those things combined are just an amazing place to work. So you do a little passion DD whenever you join a company beforehand. <laughs> um, I do. Okay, so yes, yeah. great. Because part of my VC background, I've got to do some diligence, right? <laughs> <laughs> obviously, obviously. Um, uh, leads me to my my outro question. So um, Vlad actually whispered me a little um, secret Easter egg that uh, is hidden in your editor in your Webflow editor, which you can just utilize through the, the, the Chrome web console. And um, it is a time machine feature. It, it actually um, like enables you to physically travel back in time um, if, if, if you just like um, execute a function. And um, I now have my <laughs> laptop here and I, I open up the console. I, I actually sign up at, at Webflow. Um, and I call that little time machine function like editor.time machine um, and um, I give it your name and the year 1988 when you worked as internet engineer quote unquote for Hewlett Packard um, right. and we now have the chance like we're traveling back uh, imagine that um, and we now have the chance to observe yourself for a little while I don't know what, what an internet engineer actually does um, and 
you we have were obviously to check. engineering the internet at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you know, I have the chance to whisper something into young Ellen's ears. What would it be? Um, be patient and be persistent. I think sometimes younger folks in the technology field are impatient. They want to see results um, quickly. And I think there is a lot of wisdom in taking the time to understand the tech stack, taking the time to understand the business models, taking the time to be patient and meet people in the industry. So I think patience, persistence, and drive are, are super valuable. But I also think that being patient with yourself. One of the things I tell people a lot is when you, and I, I wish somebody had told me this, so maybe I'll tell my younger self this via the function in the Webflow console. Um, when you change jobs, and that is whether it is you're changing a role inside of a company or you're literally changing jobs, give yourself at least three to six months to sort of like get settled. People jump in and they try and be impactful right away. But if you don't understand how the business works, you don't understand the culture of the business, you don't understand the technology stack, you don't understand the history of how the company's gotten here, uh, it's very, very hard to have the impact I think you want. And I think Younger Island was uh, quite impatient at times and thought he'd come in in the first week or two and make an impact. And I think I'd tell him, be patient, be persistent, give yourself a little bit of grace to understand the organization that you've just joined. Because as soon as you joined it, it was a new organization. And now that organization needs to uh, understand how to be most effective. That's great. That's great. Thanks a lot. Uh, so you were, you were an impatient internet engineer. <laughs> I was. That's not, I, I not a great up, combination. <laughs> I remember setting up circuits to various parts across the globe. I remember just being frustrated I couldn't set up circuits fast enough. I remember being frustrated that well, we couldn't get the bandwidth we wanted. I remember like pushing features and functions when I was building routers that I just couldn't believe we couldn't get done faster. I would cuss at people and say, why is it going to take three months to do that? We should be able to do it in three days. Uh, you know, I didn't suffer, didn't suffer, you know, people that I thought were not as technically adept as I was at the time. Um, they were probably a lot smarter than I gave them credit for. And I probably should have had more patience and more persistence. <laughs> so thanks a lot. Really great recording, Ellen. Um, well, thank you. And- that was fun, Toby. Have a, have a great day and, and, and see you soon. You bet. Thanks for everything. I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to chat with you. Thanks. Bye. See you soon. Have a nice night. Do I just so, leave now? That work? Yeah, yeah. You can just leave. Like anything bad? Like was was it all good? Like oh, anything good you would like to have cut out or? No, I'm sure our um, PR people want to listen to it before it goes live. <laughs> we, we'll send that over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That'd be great. Fun. It was really great. I appreciate your questions and uh, giving me the opportunity to chat. Uh, thanks. I hope, I hope your house goes well, and I hope the architects don't drive you crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great day. Bye. You too. 
Thank you for listening to the Alphalist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. Alphalist is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or as we say on Alphalist, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.